Hey everyone, before we get into today's pod, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. On top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all the other listening platforms. And the best part is, you get all of this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. That's bwhustle.com slash join. Check out our description box for this episode to find out more. But that's bwhustle.com slash join. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my co-host, Dan Favalli, and we are turning to the mailbag for today's episode. You all have been kind enough to, uh, to throw some questions at us on Twitter at the NBA Math account, the Hardwood Knox account on, on the social media platforms, and we are going to be answering most of those questions, I believe. Uh, the podcast, as always, is brought to you by betonline.ag and Indeed. You'll be hearing from them shortly. But most importantly, Dan, before we get into this, how's it going? I am doing well. We were recording this after I spent a ton of time watching the Knicks-Cavs game. Um, it was nice to see the Cavs really put up a good fight against a true contender. They lost, but they still their defense was was good. I like the effort from the Cavs there. Uh, also watched a bunch of Warriors-Pistons. I've seen a lot of Pistons lately, and I'm in love with Sadiq Bey. So hopefully none of these takes are outdated as of when this goes up on, on Wednesday morning, because we're recording this during the start of the late games, of which there are only a few. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm curious. Are you are you coming around on Julius Randle yet? Is he your favorite player now? No, he's not my favorite player, and I think the Knicks should probably trade him while his value is, is this high, but I, I really do have I'm to com- I really do have to commend like the job he's done as passing, and there are still a few plays that make me cringe every single game. Uh, and I do think this isn't him specifically, but if you want your RJ Barrett third on the most improved <laughs> player ballot pick to pan out, you just need, he, they need another shooter on the floor for him so that they can put the ball in his hands more. Uh, my other quibble is that if you're going to have Frank Nielakina try and run point, which I'm okay with, set the guy a damn screen. Like everyone, I don't know if it's because they don't think he uses them properly, but they just run away when they're about to screen for him and then he'll just give up the ball. So those are my takes. Frank Nielkina is still shooting over 40% from three since January 25th of last season. So I'm I'm living the dream, and I'm hoping once Emmanuel quickly is healthy that Frank Nielkina's minutes do not fall by the wayside, even though I think we can all agree his future does not lie in New York. He fired Leon Rose as his agent after his rookie season. Leon Rose is now the president of the Knicks. I didn't think they were going to sign an extension, um, like agree to once, so that doesn't surprise me, but I think we can all agree that he's probably leaving in free agency or getting traded this season. And that concludes our once per episode segment on Natilakina. We're only two minutes deep, so I have a few minutes left, if that's okay. Are you ready to dive into this mailbag, though? We got fantastic responses, and I, I do want to say, like, please respond. The tweets look so bad when they're coming from, like, I don't send them from my account because I have nine plus K followers and I don't want the look of not having any responses. Hardwood Knox has like four plus K followers. Don't let us send a tweet out where there's no responses. It's happened to me on NBA math too. And it's happened to you as well. And that's even worse because we have 70 K followers on NBA. I've decided math. that I'm just, I am the unequivocal master of sending out mailbag solicitations that get exactly zero responses. You, I don't know what it is. Like I try to be creative. I try to include some sort of media element and it's just, it's amazing. Like without fail, you no, need, one, I, no one wants to, to give me the questions. You need less shame. Like I beg for them in the tweets now. So you all came in resounding first. It was just friends of the pods. We had like two from friends of the pods, but then they came rolling in. So we appreciate everyone who asked the question. We'll try and get to all of them because we do have a bunch, but please, uh, we'll try and get in the habit of throwing them from the Hardwood Knox account since that's the actual podcast account, but please just respond to them. That's all we ask. Pretty please and thank you. Are you ready to, to get through this? No. Let's do it. Let's start with the first question that came in from Brian Toprek, uh, host of the NBA podcast, which we just appeared on recently, the two of us. He has two questions. 
How does the Spencer Dinwiddie injury reshape the top of the East, and which team will be undefeated the longest, and why is it the Hawks, who, by the way, after the Cavs' loss, are still in contention for that title? But let's start with the the Spencer Dinwiddie injury um, and the East. How do you see that? Do you do you see it reshaping the, the picture at all? I don't. I don't think it will, just because as good as Dinwiddie is and as important as he is to the Nets, if Brooklyn is going to be a true contender this season, which it very well could be, it comes down to Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. They can overcome any loss that isn't one of those two players. Because even with Dinwiddie gone, you still have Karis LeVert, you still have Landry Shamet, you still have Tyler Johnson to, to pick up those minutes. You still have TLC coming off the bench. So as long as those two centerpieces are healthy, I don't think that any other injury, even to DeAndre Jordan or Jared Allen or Joe Harris, is going to derail them. It, it comes down to those two players. Yeah, the thing that I could see it reshaping, and people have framed this in the the James Harden trade possibility context, I actually disagree there. I don't think Spencer Dinwiddie, with a player option for next season, that he was bound to decline if he was healthy. I don't think that makes was ever going to make or break a Harden deal. It comes down to the future first that they're going to include, how far out they're going, how many of them there are. Um, Karis LeVert, so you definitely want him to be healthy. And then what other teams are offering. So Spencer Dinwiddie is probably even below Jared Allen on the list of assets that matter in that trade. That's not an indictment on how good Spencer Dinwiddie is, because I do think that there was probably a team that would have paid him, you know, between 15 and $20 million a year in free agency this summer. I don't know if that will happen anymore. So you do it to see that. What I think it actually changes is the Nets ability to make another move that matters because now like looking at his salary and just his overall value, like that was the player you could move um, knowing you'd still have a ton of ball handling because of Karis LeVert, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving. And then you could try and prioritize like um, perimeter defense or just defense in general at the four spot. Aaron Gordon was a name that I kept coming back to for them. Um, and Orlando could certainly use someone like Spencer Dinwiddie. So that type of framework. And now you're sort of left with when you're looking at potential salary filler too, Torian Prince and stuff. And what is that stuff to make Torian Prince's deal, which is looking just worse and worse by the day? Uh, like, what are you now able to do? So can you make that medium-sized move now is what I would question. That's what that changes. The Nets may be so good already that it doesn't matter, though. Now, as for Brian's second question, we're down to two undefeateds left. And somehow, those are the Orlando Magic and the Atlanta Hawks. And as much as it pains me to say this, it's probably going to be the Magic that are the last undefeated team left standing. And that's only because of how the games line up. So the Hawks play next uh, on Wednesday night against the Brooklyn Nets. That might not go so well after the Hawks' first three wins came against non-playoff teams from last year. And the Magic have the luxury of waiting to play until Thursday when they're probably going to lose the Philadelphia 76ers. So my prediction is that by this weekend— we won't have any remaining undefeated teams, which is hilarious this early in a season, as topsy-turvy as it's been. But the Magic are the beneficiaries of having that extra day off. Yeah, so that definitely helps them. The thing I've been impressed with with the Hawks, though, uh, one, they have the league's best offense right now. And they've been about average defensively, which is kind of A little sex. above average defensively. Trey Young actually is like been a pesky defender who has been in the right spots, has absorbed contact, has made the right rotations. He might not finish dead last in every possible defensive metric this year. Yeah, he and both he and Brandon Ingram both just look like they're playing more physical and I'm just using them as comps because they're both like so like skinny and, and smaller. Brandon Ingram's actually fairly tall. Uh they have the league's best, league's best offense, been about average defensively, and that's like while not getting a great start from John Collins and just being banged up beyond reason where Rondo only recently made his season debut. Uh Chris Dunn has a foot injury right now. They haven't had Oyeka Akawu. Yeah. yeah. Um so, like, they haven't had, like, their full supply of players available. And, like, we're getting – they had minutes, good minutes, being played by Nathan Knight in their win over the Grizzlies. Um, they have to be careful with him because he's a two-way player at the moment. So – but he was intriguing. But, like, you've, I've seen a lot of Solomon Hill in the Hawks games that I've watched thus far. It's so, like, I would say a Gallo banged up too. So, they have not had by anywhere near – anywhere near their full cast of supporters there. And so, to still be undefeated, yeah, you can look at the teams that they've beaten. And John Morant uh, – no, John Morant didn't go down in the – the loss to them that was a loss to the Nets so like yeah they've they've beaten some teams that like aren't very great but like they've had some time like the Pistons game like the Pistons put up a fight in that one so 
Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's the Hawks. But a fight nonetheless. Yeah, and so I wouldn't be surprised if it's the Hawks. They definitely have the tougher road to it, but I'm now more interested than ever to see what this team looks like at full strength insofar as it ever gets to it this season. The reason I'm confident that we won't make it to the weekend with an unbeaten team, though, is because I don't think the Magic are going to beat the 76ers. If they do, I'll be wrong. But the Hawks have to play the Nets twice. And, like, they, they probably aren't sweeping the Nets in Brooklyn. Probably not. <laughs> I feel like that's a safe bet. I don't, Brooklyn did lose to the Hornets. But they didn't lose to the Hornets twice at home. That's also fair fair as well. So, yeah, I mean, but it, look, I'm, I'm just saying the Hawks start has been more encouraging than not under the circumstances. They feel like a very legitimate good team. Yes. I think we can already – they're not going to go undefeated, maybe. But we can, <laughs> we can already go, say that. Maybe they'll be like 70 and 2. They'll lose those two games to the Nets, and then that'll be it. That's fair. They'll, they'll just learn from that. Then, and, when everyone's healthy, just run roughshod over the league. I mean, it's just the final note for me on them is it makes a world of difference just having good shooters around Trey Young. They were la- dead last in uh, three point percentage last year. They're now second. And they I feel like they haven't been using him off the ball as much as I would have liked, but they also haven't had their full supply of ball handlers available. So that doesn't surprise me. And then also he just hasn't had to like do as much. And his, even though his floaters aren't falling at the moment, like there's more room for him to operate. And it just shows. I mean, the dude is averaging 15 free throw attempts per game. Like he's doing a lot. I think he's still doing the thing is that the shooters aren't hitting their shots yet. Like we're seeing how beneficial the spacing is just through their sheer presence, not through them actually connecting on those looks. Well, they're when they do start hitting, which they probably will. Like Bogdanovich already like kind of came out of it. Historically good. Yeah, Bogdanovich kind of got hot in the game against the Pistons, so that'll help. Um, But yeah, uh, they're they're a team that I'm just even more interested in after seeing their first few games. This next question um, threw threw some shade at me, probably deservedly so. Comes from Doctor Mantis Toboggan uh Corbor is the the handle can you guys talk about the Pels how the Pe- talk about how good the Pels look with Steven Adams and how wrong Dan Dan was about Adams's impact I followed up with this question because I wanted to know what I said that was inflammatory and on our Pelicans preview with Mason Ginsburg I said whereas I think about the Tristan Thompson edition for Boston and hate it the more I think about it the more I think about Adams for the Pels I like it I just am not crazy about the opportunity cost of it um, that being said, I apparently was among the national analysts, whatever you want to call me, bemoaning that they didn't put a floor spacing five next to Zion. Uh, the Pelicans are shooting as of – they're playing at the moment while we're recording this, but entering Tuesday night's game against the – I can't even remember who they're playing right now. I'm blanking on it. Uh, but entering Tuesday night's game, they are shooting four, against the Suns. They're shooting 42.5% from three when Adams and Zion are on the floor. I don't know – and I that I expect that to hold. And by that, I mean, I don't expect that to hold. But Steven Adams has done a, a great job, like, creating space with his screens. He's done wonders for them. You could just see, I don't know if this is him, but, like, they're they're pretty good defensively this year. Maybe that's part Adams. That's part Stan Van Gundy's magic touch. But, like, Brandon Ingram looks more engaged. There was a play the other night where he, like, shoved Lonzo Ball back on to his assignment. So those are all good harbingers. And I, I think there's something to be said about just having – above reliable above average center play for x amount 25 to 30 plus minutes per game where you didn't even have that in Derek favors he was playing a smaller role and he just wasn't as available uh, so i i i would guess i'm impressed by what he's done for the pels but like their offense is not good yet like brandon ingram looks great um his playmaking has been fantastic he's taking more off the dribble jumpers and like they look good they're not necessarily falling at the highest clip right now they have the league's worst half court offense though as of this writing and there are still lineups where I would just question whether their current shooting clip is going to sustain. It's There are moments or combinations where they can struggle to have two good shooters on the court at the same time, or maybe more than two, because I think Brandon Ingram counts, and then one of Josh, both of Josh Hart and Reddick count, but they're not playing together a ton that I've seen just yet. And then it's like, do you consider Lonzo Ball a good shooter? Like, I, I don't think you could go that far. And overall, they're 14th in three-point efficiency for the season at 36.5% which is fine, and you know you would like to see them up like higher because top 10 right now is well into the 38-39% range. So that's still something I'm going to be watching. I do not hate the Steven Adams edition, and I'm sure that I was wrong on some level. Maybe I thought it was going to make them, it could hamper them defensively because they wouldn't be as mobile, even though Adams' teams have generally done a better job of limiting looks at the rim uh, when he's been on the court. So the Pels have been 
fine, encouraging. I need to see a lot more from their their offense overall. And I think they're built to struggle in the half court when you look at Bledsoe. Lonzo Ball doesn't really operate on ball in the half court as well. Ingram is good enough to kind of get them out of it, but they might need to get quirkier with some of their lineup combinations or maybe their roster construction comes back to bite them. We're still so early. It, it remains a concern of mine. According to NBA Math's adjusted team ratings, the three worst offenses in the league so far, and and with this stat, 100 is league average. Anything below is worse. The Golden State Warriors, 89.7. The Toronto Raptors, 92.6. And the New Orleans Pelicans, 93.1. That's all entering Tuesday's slate of games. I don't expect any of those three to hold. And the Pelicans in particular, it's, it's not necessarily because Adams is a great fit alongside Zion Williamson and everyone else, but because... They just do have that requisite talent to figure things out and experiment with more lineups, as you mentioned. I still have concerns over the lack of shooting, but the, the big the big qualm with the Adams addition was the pairing with Zion. And with respect to just that pairing, I've seen enough that I'm already not concerned, even if the early results haven't been great, just because Zion has such a preternatural understanding of spacing and body control that even if the paint is a little bit more congested, it just doesn't seem to matter. He's a freight train in the open court. He has an uncanny ability to kind of squeeze through those crevices and still find ways to, to finish plays above or below the rim. And I, I just think that because he has that ability from the four spot that you can get away with having that Adams pairing because Steven Adams does so many other things. Well, he's a, fantastic screen setter he's a great team defender he's a great individual defender he's an underrated passer he has some ability to put the ball in the basket from around the hoop even if he isn't stretching the floor he does so much good and zion is uniquely capable of of accounting for the weakness the purported weakness that i just don't think it's going to matter in the long run yeah they just i think what's and i would even say you know you said the returns haven't been like great i would say they've been really good with zion and steven adams on the floor so far i mean on defense just not on offense to be questionable on offense they are so dependent on brandon ingram right now when they're not operating in transition which they need to figure out his uh his uh half court um offensive rating differential is in the 73rd percentile right now again that's still early but that's that's just monstrous and when you look at like some of the other main ball handlers bledsoe ball reddick uh, the the offense is all worse when in the half court when they're on the, on the floor right now. So just something to monitor. And uh, Corbord did make I don't know your first name. I apologize. Is it Corey? I um, but we've talked on Twitter a bunch, and we appreciate your engagement. Uh, he did note who are the Pels supposed to sign when you're looking at the floor spacing five. I think that's a very fair criticism. Like they could go out and pick up Dwayne Deadman right now, who's just floating around out there. But like that's not the optimal the idea of Dwayne Deadman. But he hasn't sh- shot threes well and. Is it two seasons now ever since that year with Atlanta? Or maybe it's just a full season because it feels like um, that one season lasted forever. I have no forever. concept of time anymore. Right. So. I think it was 2018, 2019. So it last so season like was – like a decade ago. Yeah. It was, yeah. <laughs> was kind of a dud for him there. But that that's also – like unless you were going to get in, in Aaron Baines, which I don't even – like he he's not a bankable floor spacer. So unless you were going to get a Marcus Gasol, unless you were going to get a Serge Ibaka – um, which you clearly weren't, and you could probably argue that just the way that Steven Adams moves about on defense right now, he's going to be better for you than Ibaka anyway. I think that's a fair criticism. If um, That's probably something that we lacked on this podcast to name alternatives just because there weren't many. I do think long-term, if you're not playing Zion at the five, that that's what you want to do is find that floor spacer there. Do you want to get to the one that called you out, Andre Bobrick? Sure, let's do it. How wrong was... Uh, Adam with his Blazers takes and has he changed his mind yet? Follow-up question from Adam, which takes would those be? Andre replied, on the Blazers' wings not panning out or something. I just remember you being very low on them during one of the podcasts. After the Blazers beat a full Lakers squad, I was just wondering if the defense that Rocco and DJJ uh, played changed your mind. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm encouraged by what I've seen so far. I don't know that my mind has changed and maybe that's just on me for not making my my original points clearer but the the lowness on on the blazers is probably just relative to the sparkling optimism that dan had on the blazers like i i still had this team in our over-unders you know they they entered with a a 40.5 win over under from vegas i have i'm going 40 and 32 so I, i don't think that's like particularly low it's more just i had questions about that wing rotation not the the full effectiveness of it but just the individual pieces like how much 
you're going to be able to rely on Carmelo Anthony, how much we can believe in Robert Covington as a true three and D guy, because the three ball hasn't been that consistent, whether we can rely on Derek Jones Jr. and Gary Trent Jr. from fairly small samples. So far, all those are being answered positively. It's also only three games. And in those three games, the, the Blazers needed overtime to beat a shorthanded Rockets team. They beat a full-strength Lakers team, albeit on the second game of a back-to-back, and they lost their opener. So they still have a negative net rating on the season, but we're only three games in. So it's it's just hard to draw too many conclusions. But yeah, I'm I'm encouraged by what I've seen so far. Maybe not enough to bump them that far up in my Western Conference pecking order, but so far the answers to those questions, which I, I do still think are valid ones, have been positive. It's just so early in the season to walk back anything. I will say they just seem built, better built to navigate crunch time this season because Absolutely. of having Roko. No, I mean, I think both of us thought that they had a fantastic offseason. Like, I, I wish that I had made that more clear just because I, I did really like their offseason. I just, I'm not ready to put them among the Western Conference elites. I think that's fair. This question comes from uh, Latchy Somerville. Uh, or Lashi Somerville, apologize for butchering the pronunciation. How will Triple J and Brandon Clark coexist into the future? Um, Example, is Clark going to be a bench guy forever, or will they start together? And how will that dynamic pan out with Clark being short and Triple J not being the best rebounder? Uh, One thing I wanted to touch on really quickly with the Grizzlies, the John Morant injury is just absolutely brutal for them. It's better that it's not anything like super serious. It's a grade two sprain of his left ankle. It'll keep him out three to five weeks. Um, per team announcement, I was lower on them to start the season than you, and we still haven't figured out what the bet would be. Uh, I think and, the John Morant injury might void any bet that. Yeah, yeah, way to walk it back now. But uh, with Justice Winslow still out, uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. still out, this team is fir- firmly in the King Cunningham sweepstakes now. Like the three to five weeks can make that big of a difference in a truncated season. Um, I'm just happy it wasn't more serious for Morant, and I hope that he comes back and and Ja is fine. Uh, to the to the questions point, I personally, Jaron Jackson Jr. is going to have to get better at not only rebounding but not fouling for that pairing to work. They played um, twelve hundred possessions together last year, and they were close to league average defensively. But that the lineups they were playing in forced turnovers a ton. They fouled even more. They were pretty not great at rebounding, and so unless you're going to have strong rebounding guards and wings around them that could get difficult and you're going to give up kind of size like size or strength at one of the two positions in the front court i don't know if it's tenable long term really to, to answer the question i would be more so than the rebounding with jaron jackson jr which is a real problem but he's also played beside like you know Jonas valanciunas for a bunch of his career is going to gobble up a lot of those uh, it's the fouling for me because both of those two and even clark maybe when he's trying to help like he's going to end up just getting a ton of fouls as well in that pairing and you don't want to be sending offenses like throwing parades to the to the free throw line and and that would be the the bigger concern so until jaron jackson jr like not i don't want to say proves he could improve his defense in general but he definitely has to prove that he can defend fives consistently which he's not done yet at that spot and i don't even know if the grizzlies view him as someone they want to put at center long term that's something that's yet to be determined and so my guess would be that we never reach a point where both of them are just regular starters. I don't see that being a, a tenable front court. Maybe it's one they come to rely on a ton in the middle of games, but I would be mildly surprised if they wind up starting together you know, indefinitely at, at any point. Plus, Jonas Valanciunas is only 28 and can still feasibly be a part of the long-term core. But with respect to the, the Clark-Jackson pairing, I am concerned about it, and I know we just said we're not overreacting to these small samples early in the season, but I, I want to react a little to to just how bad Brandon Clark has looked in these first three games. Like I, I am legitimately worried about that because as pleasant a surprise as he was last year, he looks nothing like that player. He's forcing shots with an altered jumper that is incredibly ugly. He doesn't look like He knows exactly where to be on either end of the court. His floater touch has all but disappeared. Uh, He isn't getting as involved as a passer. It just, I don't think I'm seeing a confident basketball player whatsoever at a time when they really need him to be one. And, you know, I mean, it's not like we're talking about a guy with like extreme pedigree here. He was the 21st pick in 2019 and was a pleasant surprise as a rookie. So, I hope I'm wrong. I hope that I don't have to be concerned by the midway point of this season. But at this stage, I am worried about his ability to be 
a big part of this core. Yeah, really uneven season for him. Had like kind of a good game against Brooklyn the other night, but was three of seven at the foul line, six uh, eleven from the floor overall. He's actually had two games: five of nine in the first game of the season, and six of eleven um, from the floor in general uh, in the the third game. But just between the foul shooting, the overall look of the the jump shot, um, the, the defensive weirdness, I guess that I would just call it. And he's not someone who's like really beasted on the boards for them this year either. Uh, I, I think it's definitely concerning. Look, the jump shot for him, and I didn't see the game against the Nets, so unless he reverted back, he hit his only three-point attempt. Unless he reverted back to what it looked like. I saw someone, I can't remember who it was on Twitter. I wish I could credit them saying it looks like he's holding the um, the controller button too long while he's going up for a shot in <laughs> 2K. And look, again, just a massively tiny sample of only 75 minutes through three games, but the Grizzlies have been 15.7 points per 100 possessions worse with him on the floor. And that is not a great start from a guy you're hoping is going to be a breakout second year player with all the injuries around him. Like that's, that's just not ideal. The NBA is back in action and football is heading into the playoffs. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at bet online. Bet online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season from game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props. Bet online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. This next question comes from Miroslav Shuk. I want Dan and Adam's top five MVP favorites. Actually, Adam's two to five favorites since we know Monte Morris is number one. So we did have the the podcast where we made our awards predictions. Has your impression, though, I can remind you of if you don't remember who you picked as your five of who you picked to see if you think that that's changed at all. Why don't you run through both of ours just so people can be reminded? Okay, so yours was... Um, Luca at one, Giannis at two, Dame at three, Steph at four, Tatum at five. I had Tatum at one, Doncic at two, Steph at three, Jokic at four, Giannis at five. If I had to pick changes from mine, I might bump Giannis way down with his start to the season. has been a little bit um, odd. I, I think it's more, it's better to frame this in, is there anyone who you think right now uh, that you didn't, not that you didn't consider them, but that has like wedged their way into consideration to be in the top five that you didn't initially pick. Yes, absolutely. And why is it's, it Trey Young? It's Nikola Jokic, okay, who has just been absolutely unreal for the Denver Nuggets. And the game before we're recording this podcast, he had 18 assists, and they were just fantastic, just dropping dimes all over the place to cutters to everywhere everyone everywhere because he has eyes all over the place apparently um that was the first time a center had had 18 assistants will, will chamberlain at the time that we're recording this and i'm talking right now while there's 10 minutes and 21 seconds left in the nuggets kings game Jokic has eight points four rebounds six assists and two steals on four of four shooting he's just on a tear and we have not seen him come out of the gates quite like this we, we know how immensely valuable he is to the Nuggets, but he's typically a player who works his way up to that peak level. And if he's going to start at this level, that's just terrifying. Now, with Trey Young, I, I think to this point, he would be in the top five of the MVP voting if the season were to end right now. But whether that's sustainable is a different question. Just for fun, Basketball References NBA, uh, NBA MVP Award Tracker, which is based on historical voting results and how they correlate with different stats. The top five are fantastic right now. I don't know if you've looked at this at all, Dan. Yeah, and it ruins one of the – both of the names I would have inserted into the conversation at least early. Trey awesome. Young was – I'm definitely going to go through it. Uh, the, top, the top five they have right now are Jokic, 1%. James Harden, 1.1%. Darius Garland from the Cleveland Cavaliers, 1.9%. DeMontis Sabonis, who has been phenomenal at 2%, and Trey Young at 91.8%. So we might as well just hand him the award now. He's in there. The one that's uh, Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving is eminently like in, yeah. could get into the conversation. Maybe they cannibalize votes from each other. Uh, as someone who had Steph in their initial top five, I'd probably put 
say that one of them is more likely to finish in the top five than Steph at this point, just based on how the Warrior season has gone. Although they did pick up two straight wins, you know, two and two going home for a long homestand. That's not the worst case scenario for for Golden State, and so. Uh, yeah, that's where I think Trey needs. I think Trey is the most sustainable one that I forgot. Jokic for you is clear. I already had him. In my you top you, you five. think Trey is sustainable as a top five MVP threat? Yeah, you don't. Mm. I, I'm not sure, just because I again the Hawks have three wins, but they're over three non-playoff teams, and I don't know how sustainable this workload is. Where he's not going to keep taking 15 free throws per game for the entire season. Coming into today, he was averaging more free throws than the Toronto Raptors as a team. Um, so as fantastic as he is and as improved as he looks on defense, I'm just, I'm not quite sure that they're going to need to be as reliant on him now that Rondo's back and Brandon Goodwin doesn't have to play any more minutes at point guard mercifully. Um, and just as the other guys get healthier and are able to take more of an offensive burden, I'm just not sure that he's going to be there this season, maybe next year. Uh, just since it, it typically takes players, you know, they, they gain the recognition and then they get the award votes the next year. A lot of the times, so I, I'm just I'm not sure that I'm ready to put him in that conversation yet. The narrative I want is, to, I want to, I'm just not there. The narrative is built for it if they keep dealing with so many injuries, though, and are yeah. just a decidedly yeah, good team. Next question comes from Robert: Which starter or starters should the Bulls trade if, when it's clear they just don't fit together at all? Also, does Larry Markkinen look likely to perform well enough to earn twenty million dollars a year? Um, in his next contract, small sample size and dumb speculation, I know, is what his parenthetical read. I'll throw it to you first. I mean, if if Markinen is going to continue to play like this, sure. Like, no. entering Tuesday, Who's he's averaging... Mar- if he's going to continue to play like this, entering Tuesday, he's averaging 20.7.7 rebounds. He's shooting 52.8% from the field, 47.6% from three. That's just not going to be sustainable, though, and that's the issue. There's no way he's getting $20 million per year. Yeah, they, he would be the, the player that I identify as a trade candidate for them just because he plays what's going to be Patrick Williams' best position. And so unless you want to play both of them at the 4-5, and five, and then you're looking at, oh, well, then what's Wendell Carter, Wendell Carter Jr.'s chilling on the bench? I also think it's dangerous to reinvest in anyone at this point when you're still so early in the, the we state. We have no idea what the Bulls are going to look like. Right, yeah. and I was so disgusted with their first game of the season. They were, they were just— <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> As a Hawks fan, I'm sure you weren't. Uh, they were just so bad. And then there there are the obvious candidates, Thomas Adaransky, um, looking at him, Thaddeus Young as the veteran, Otto Porter even, if someone wants needs a wing and will take on his expiring contract. The one that I think they should look at as sort of a sell-high situation would be Zach Levine. His contract is really good now. That, that contract has aged super well. And, yeah, he's young enough to be a part of the next iteration, but he's sort of overtaxed. I'm just wondering what you could get from him this season like if you can get two high-end assets for him uh, i would probably pull the trigger and that's not me trying to romanticize the idea of a rebuild i just think uh you know carnicevus like go ahead and put your stamp on this on this roster even more so uh larry Markin would be the one that i identify though because the other ones it's like you know thaddeus young and sadaransky have partial guarantees next year so like they could be viewed as they're not expiring because they'll cost you money to get rid of but like whatever market is the one that you have to look at who you're going to pay. And even Otto Porter's expiring. I don't know what his market's going to look like. Um, you, you do desperately need wings. I just don't know that Patrick Williams should be playing so much three and he hasn't been terrible there. He's been better defensively there than I would have expected him to be um, from the bulls that I've watched. Again, they've played four games and I've seen like less than half of those four games. So just to clarify that uh, still, uh, it, it would be marketing for me. I don't know if you would choose uh, anybody else over him. No, the only the only part of that I disagree with is I, I wouldn't trade Levine, and maybe I'm just and, and forgive the pun here too bullish on him still. Um, I I don't think he's an empty stats guy. Um, he might have been early in his career, but he he is a legitimately good offensive basketball player, and I think that when you're rebuilding, you need someone like that. Like there's no doubt that the Bulls are still mired in their ongoing rebuild, and I just I think if you trade Levine, no matter what the return you're getting might be. You're just starting over from scratch again, and it makes it harder to evaluate Patrick Williams. It makes it harder to evaluate Wendell Carter Jr. It makes it harder to evaluate Kobe White and whoever else you get. So I, I think that given Levine's age and the favorable nature of his contract, that he's the kind of player who they should keep. I think there's a justification to be made to keep him, but I also feel like as he's going to approach his next contract, I think he's a free agent in 2022, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you're, you know, 
if you're not ready to compete by then, like now you're going to get to a point where you have to probably pay him a whole bunch of money to stick around. I don't know if that's the the smartest thing. And you're dealing with the same time Wendell Carter Jr.'s future at that point. Kobe White uh, is going to be extension eligible by that point. So I totally get what you're saying. And he is a good offensive player. I want to make that clear. But it's also there's there's no evidence to suggest that he elevates the play of his teammates. Like his numbers just go towards, yeah, the Bulls are better on offense with him on the court, but they're still just terrible. I just wonder how much of that is is not being able to fill a favorable role. Just because when was the last time he played on a team with legitimate talent around him? I don't like, think was it's... it the Carl Anthony Towns Timberwolves really early in his career when he was still developing the point guard skills and trying to figure out what his best position was? Well, I just I don't think he's been given a chance to elevate his teammates because the teammates around him aren't necessarily capable of being elevated to this point. Yeah, I, my whole thing with him is that he's he's been miscast, but that is part of the problem is that he can't be that. He I don't think he could be your primary guy on a good team. Like you just can't saddle him with that level right, of playmaking responsibility. And that's, that's just fair. where I'm at with him. And unless the Bulls think they have that player in place soon, unless they think it's Kobe White, maybe it is. Uh, it's not yeah, going to be Patrick right. Williams. That's just not his role on offense. That's why I look. I I said sell high. I wouldn't just move him for the sake of moving him. Like this isn't a Kevin Love or Blake Griffin situation by by any means. Next question though comes from Paulito. Does does Marcus All and Montrez Harrell's offensive addition make up for the defensive loss of Dwight and Javale McGee, the latter of whom is playing very well in Cleveland right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it definitely does. Uh, not only are they fantastic on offense, but Marcus All is still a phenomenal defender. And and that alone helps. But the, the the thing the Lakers needed to improve on, they had a great defense throughout all of last season. It was the half-court offense that struggled. And Montrez Harrell is ultimately a half-court offensive player. Marcus Saul is a half-court offensive magician. So you're, you're shoring up that weakness at the expense of a slight decline on the defensive end. It, th- this team is still at its best when Anthony Davis is playing the five. And he's not going to do that with Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee on the floor. He's definitely not, not going to do that with Marcus Gasol on the floor either. But you're still setting yourself up to play your most effective style of basketball with those changes. So, I, I mean, between the offensive growth, the the roster flexibility that you're given, and Marcus Gasol's defense, I, I think that it's still a, a perfectly valid and probably an upgrade move. The Lakers half-court offense ranks in the 89th percentile when playing without LeBron James this season. Again, such a tiny, unfathomable. Such a tiny sample size. The most used lineup in that scenario has been um, Schroeder, Wes Matthews, Kyle Kuzma, Anthony Davis, and Montrez Harrell. The one quibble I have is that I probably wouldn't start both Gasol and, and Schroeder, and I think it's easier to bring um, Schroeder off the bench just looking at the way the, the front court rotation setup is. Uh, just because I think that you should be staggering their minutes more more rigidly. But look, the Lakers are they're fine, and I think that I, I agree with everything you you said there. They've definitely safeguarded their LeBronless minutes um, as well as they've can. I just you don't ever want. I don't think there should ever be minutes where I think every single LeBronless minute should basically be played without well, with both of um, Schroeder and Gasol on there, and it's easier to do that uh, when one of them isn't starting. And so that would be Schroeder. I think, look, you could argue that Schroeder's the one that needs to play every single non-LeBron minute. And that's easier to do if he's coming off the bench, even if you want to close games with him still. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I feel like fairly comfortable saying the only thing that is going to prevent the Lakers from looking like a bona fide super team is either a significant injury to LeBron or Anthony Davis or a decline in play from LeBron which, you know, is eminently possible. He's about to have his 36th birthday. Like, no one can defy father time forever except for maybe LeBron. So as as hard as it is to believe that could happen, I think that's that's the only way that we're, we're not talking about this team as just an absolute juggernaut. Next question comes from Killian Eve. How are the Cavaliers doing this? Do you want me to take that? Colin one? Sexton. <laughs> Darius Garland, the Sexland combo. I mean, that backcourt has just been so offensively potent, and it's amazing that they're doing this while still trying to figure out Andre Drummond's ideal role, while Kevin Love has a calf uh, a calf injury, while Kevin Porter Jr. is still going through his legal and personal issues to make his debut. Like this is 
this is a team that's defying the odds, and it's just because of those two guys right now. Yeah, their defense has been unreasonably good. They are second in points allowed per possession right now. My guess would be that that does not hold, but they've done and using the, the the their game, they blew out the Sixers, um, who did not have Joel Embiid for that game. But they they put up a fight against the Knicks, even though they were down big. They just compete really hard, and I think Sexton's gotten better at, at, on that end. He's put he put some full court pressure on during the during the New York game. Um, they have the best defense in the league um, um, when they turn the ball over. Like that's getting back after moments like that is super important they're forcing turnovers right now more frequently than any other team without fouling a ton again i don't know how sustainable this this all is andre drummond has been fantastic for them too he had like a crazy sequence in the philly game where he blocked he had two blocks one of which was on ben simmons he powered his way put the ball on the floor to the hoop um kept dribbled the ball off the floor um threw a pass to garland and then threw a pass to i think it was nance or something to set up for the easy transition lane the Cavs are just they're fun and they have a lot of young talent and they're not even at full strength right now. And you can ask, you know, does Kevin Love like actually make them better? He feels like he's someone who could really plug and play. Dylan Windler fractured his hand. Isaac Okoro's not playing right now and he looked really good uh, for a rookie. And so I don't, I don't know what I would call them. I think the word that's floating around NBA Twitter is probably cliche, but it's also accurate. They're frisky. I wouldn't say that yeah. they're going to contend for a playoff spot, but right now, if they don't trade anybody, I would have thought they tried to trade Drummond this season. I think they still should. Um, like, I maybe they could get to the play-in. Uh, like, it's I'm not... willing to say they can compete for a playoff spot if they look like this. Well, and if I still they think, look like I still this, think everything boils down to the Sexland backcourt because they've been so potent offensively that it's allowed everyone else to be that frisky on defense. Like, yeah, they're winning games through frisky, but I think it just all stems from that young backcourt. And if it's that good, it makes everything around them better on both ends. Just because you have so many guys like Drummond, like Okoro, um, like Porter when he's healthy, uh, who who are capable of flitting around in half-court defense and wreaking havoc. And they're more empowered to do that and continuing to force turnovers and continuing to get back in transition when you have two guards who are dominating the ball. Yeah, I mean, the game has clearly slowed down for Darius Garland. He looks good this year. Had a rocky performance against the Knicks, but overall, he's been really good. Like I said, JaVale McGee before, and then Larry Nance Jr. is huge. To have, like, a legitimate body to throw ben, like a Ben Simmons player, uh, but that's just absolutely monstrous. I'll be curious to see how much this holds. I just don't know. I don't know whether I expect it to hold. I am, I'll say I'm skeptical as to whether the defensive performance can hold. I don't. I don't necessarily think that the what they've done offensively is is unreasonable at this point. And they are, as I'm looking, they're only 16th in offensive efficiency. So it's like it's not like they're setting the the world on fire. They have they've shot a ridiculous clip from three, if I'm not mistaken. And you have to wonder if that's going to hold. You look at Garland. We know Sexton can shoot, but it's Garland, you know, he was billed as a shooter coming out of college. He didn't shoot too poorly from three last year. But he's shooting 45.5% from three right now. Sexton's at 54% right now. Jetty Osmond's at 41%. JaVale McGee, three of five from beyond the arc this year, 60%. Larry Nance Jr., 38.5%. So, uh, yeah, you know, but again, I I want to see this team at full strength. I mostly want to see Isaac Okoro come back, but he and Kevin Love, I think, could end up helping them a great deal. I would Fun not, fact, if you... Uh, I was going to say, if I had to force you to choose playing or not, what are you picking for them right now? I think they'll be in the play-in. Who are the five teams in the East that are worse than them? The five teams in the East that are worse than them. Let's let's go through it. I mean, I'll give you the easy one. Charlotte, Chicago. Right. The Knicks. I would still say overall, even though the Knicks are they're on the one. Pistons. Right now. The Pistons definitively, okay. But beyond that, that's where it gets a little tricky. Wizards, you could say maybe. Yeah, probably probably the Wizards would be the fifth one but below them. Yeah, that's not. I'm gonna say no because I think that maybe not that they steer out of it, but I think there's like some regression to the mean here, and then also I could see them moving like you know not you know what actually they're not gonna move any of the most important players of this. I could see them moving Drummond, but I don't know how much that really dings them. I'm still I'm still gonna say no. I just have a suspicious feeling, but I welcome being wrong on this front. So fun fact on I'll I'll go back to that basketball reference NBA MVP award tracker. The Cavs are the only team to this point in the season with two players in the top 10. Book That's it. Colin Sexton at number seven Book and it. Darius Garland at number three. Who would have thought that the Cleveland Cavaliers have the NBA's best duo? Who would have thought? Not me. 
Yeah, me neither. <laughs> Look at us. It's the Paul Rudd meme right there. 2020 has already reshaped how we work, and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Well, Indeed is here to help. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of, of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it and fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Josh Sakow asks, if Harden is still around at the trade deadline, should the Warriors trade Wiggins, Oubre, Wiseman, and the Timberwolves pick for Harden? We've, we've thought favorably of that possibility in the past, but I'm kind of changing my mind there because the Warriors are further away from contention than we thought. Like this team has, has not looked good to this early point in the season. And I'm just, I'm no longer sure that you want to give up Weissman who looks extremely promising at this early stage and, and all the other assets to make that happen. Like, I think it's as simple as that is that that was we were at least tepidly in favor of that trade because it seemed like it could generate immediate title contention. And I'm no longer sure that there's the requisite depth and upside for that to happen, even with a Curry Harden backcourt. And while Wiseman's trade value has improved in just a few games, Wiggins has cratered his clutch performance against the Pistons aside. And what is the opportunity cost of actually getting James Harden now. So the framework of the deal when I had Salman Ali on the pod was Wiggins, Wiseman, Looney, Pascal, and then we had the Minnesota pick plus two additional firsts and two swaps. Maybe you need, let's say, including the Minnesota pick, a total of two firsts and two swaps. But like that's, are you willing to give up a control of four first round picks, three of which would be your own, one of which would be the Minnesota pick, plus Wiseman? Because Wiggins' deal is just such a net negative. Like that's how you have to view it. And so I, I would still do it just because it's James Harden, but I do, I need to see Draymond Green first to understand whether this team is actually one top five offensive player away from making the jump into authentic title contention. And I think that's the biggest question mark that we've seen. Um, at the end of the day, though, it is James Harden. So if that deal is on the table, um, I don't know if you would work Ubre into it. Maybe that makes it more palatable to Houston because of his expiring contract, but you need the money to work and uh, maybe there's something you could work out where you're getting pj tucker back as well because he would help a ton for the warriors who desperately need center play and that's also the problem with trading wiseman is after you lose chris centers are like kind of replaceable but right now you're going to already rely on a bunch of uh draymond green's probably going to play a bunch of five we've already seen pascal play some five yeah. yeah so that tucker might have to be a part of that deal i'd still do it but i'm less confident about it and i think what, what would be important is if that's even a possibility you need to see what you look like with Draymond Green first. Um, Chencho Pokuball asks, what is a good package for George Hill and who needs him the most? I guess those questions were kind of intertwined because the package for George Hill depends on uh, who actually needs him most. I'll throw some teams at you. Some people mentioned Brooklyn after the Dinwiddie injury. I get that, but like, I don't know that they need him. They have TLC if Shamit starts shooting better. Hill could probably handle the ball like more than both of them, but I don't know that you need to replace Dinwiddie unless you don't consider Levert a good enough backup playmaker, and I would argue that he is. Also, Bruce Brown's best position is point guard, and so if you can find more minutes for him, I think that that helps you. I thought Boston was a good one. Uh, they do. That's the- where my mind went first, but Peyton Pritchard has been phenomenal so far. I just still playoff time, and they don't have like a. I mean, he might be the knockdown shooter, but they could use just another like guy who is molten. From beyond the, not off the dribble stuff, just like off the ball, absolute molten. And so they have the trade exception. They have some of those young guys if they're just going to do it with players. And, um, you know, they have salaries that they could pile on top of one another to to get to, to George Hill, who I believe is making, what is he at, $11 million, uh this season. Um, I forgot to check that before we answered this. But they were a team that, 
that sprung to mind for me. There are other contenders that I – Yoer, he would be a really good fit right now. Actually, it would be New Orleans, but uh, they could have had him but but did not. Uh, maybe a Dallas might be interesting for him. You know what was coming to mind for me is Phoenix. That's interesting. They Just have Javon them, Carter and Cameron them another. Yeah, but are you really that excited about either of them at this point? Like, Javon Carter plays so hard, but that's primarily on the defensive end. I don't have much confidence in Payne. So getting that third ball handler alongside and behind Chris Paul and Devin Booker could go a long way. And they, they do have some front court clutter to get rid of, too. Yeah, I could see Javon Carter's offense, especially his start. I could see that making some people nervous. Cameron Payne actually hasn't been too bad. Uh, maybe the Clippers would be another. They need, like, yeah. George Hill's not what you would call a point guard, but he would be an, he would be the best point guard on their roster. And the fewer Reggie Jackson minutes, the better. Yeah. Those, but like he's also someone that you would just trust more to run point than Patrick Beverly in a playoff series, I would think. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe even, maybe, Miami. They probably need someone who's just a little bit better at shot creation. I was going to troll and say Milwaukee could really use him, but that's, you know, we could move on from there. Uh, Phoenix is interesting, though. I think you could just name really any competent bench player, and Philly would definitely have a need. Uh, you don't believe in Shake Milton? I believe in Shake Milton, but... You still need, like, I guess, is Tyrese, Tyrese Maxey your guy after that? Do you think he's good enough to shoulder those minutes? Maybe. I really liked him coming into the draft. Fair enough. I mean, those were the teams that would spring to mind for me. I think Boston— Toronto could be interesting, too, just because I'm not sure that they're ready to give big minutes to Malachi Flynn. So if you—I mean— they, You know what Nick Nurse would do, too? Ball. You know what they would do, too, because Norman Powell is so frustrating? You could probably see Lowry, Van Fleet, and George Hill play together just for the hell of it. I'd be here for it. It'd be really fun. OG at the four, Siakam at the five. Let's roll. Those are the teams that spring to mind. Boston would most intrigue me. Look, if Orlando keeps this up, maybe them. They're they're, they're 4-0. Yeah, um, but I I don't think you want to take touches away from Cole Anthony and Markel Fultz at this point. If they're just decidedly intent on continuing their run of first-round exits, you go and you get George (laughs) Hill and you think about the rest – the the rest later is that the, that's the hill you want to die on here wow that was bad but boston intrigues me most just and they have the not only the trade exception but like just between their other young players i think it's clear you wouldn't give up a pritchard for them but like what is carson edwards to them at this point romeo langford's injured how high are they on him i wouldn't give up aaron naismith or grant williams but like there's stuff you could do to get to the money to work and so that would be one that interests me or you could just take them into your trade exception and send back a pick or do a separate trade with an actual player you get the gist there Next question as we roll through, try and get to as many of these as possible. Scrolling up because I scrolled past all of them. From Jacob Bourne, very good friend of the pod. Oh, no. What's something in your life you've metaphorically or literally won by 51 points? Please either answer for yourselves or each other. Wow. That's tough. I don't know that I've ever won anything by 51 points. I'm trying to think of, like, I've definitely won video games by, like, a bunch of points against the computer. I'm just trying to think of, like, what I was ever... Never in real life, though. Like, I would be on the team that would be losing by 51 points. Yeah, that that was a pretty frequent occurrence for me as well. Um, Anyway, he also... I I want Jacob to tell us what our answers should be. Right. That's That's my answer to this question, is that I need to hear from Jacob what he thinks our 51 point wins have been in life. He did also, Jacob also sent this fun NBA facts about number 51, top 51st draft picks, Monte Morris, Kyle Korver, and Lawrence Funderburk, who also wore <laughs> number 51. Um, and did you know, Anton Jameson once scored 51 points in back-to-back games. And that the night of the second game, Kobe also scored 51. My question, what do you think of all of that? I'm just impressed. He took the time to look it all up. I'm I'm both impressed and like a little worried for him. Right. Uh, this will be the unless you have other ones. This will be the last one. Um, comes from um, Rod. I do have one. Okay. Uh, Pedrid Pedrigo, um, Rodrin Cobb. Sorry if I missed your name here. Aside from the group of already established young guards, Doncic, Simmons, Young, Mitchell, well, this is my one, Murray, so. <laughs> who is more likely to have the best career? And what about the the highest peaks tiers? Russell. Um, D'Angelo, I'm assuming D'Angelo Russell, um, Anthony Edwards, John Morant, De'Aaron Fox, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Jamal Murray, both ball brothers, LaMelo and Lonzo, Darius Garland, Colin Sexton, Markel Fultz, um, Derek White, and Hayes. Who am I? Who's Hayes? Killian. 
Oh my God! I apologize, Pistons fan. Killian Hayes or Jackson Hayes. It could be Jackson Hayes in well, like a weird guards. hybrid point center right. role. Um, so, so who do you think has? Well, the... here's how I want to handle this okay, because this ahead. was the one I was I was going to bring up because I didn't think that you had seen this one. Um, I want to draft these guys just in a vacuum. I want to I want to go through and draft them with you. The answer is no, but thank you for asking. The an- the answer to my my request? Yeah, is no. You don't have that kind of authority here. That's also fair. Let's do this. Uh, who gets the first pick? I guess you should because I, it was your I'm idea. making you do it, so you can have the first pick. Okay, I'm going to take John Morant. Yeah, I figured you would. That's the right decision. I mean, he's he's the favorite to have the best career and the highest peak, right? Yeah, I mean, look, this is even just seeing it this season, and he still has to get a little bit more comfortable with his three point shot, even though it seems like he is more comfortable there. We're not talking about just an all star like this. He's an all NBA like MVP yeah. candidate type player. I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. He he was my easy number one choice. I'll go with De'Aaron Fox second. I I feel Probably. like the game fully slowed down for him last year towards the end of the season, and I'm I'm just excited to see the level that he can reach this year. His speed is unreal. He has such good command of the ball. Um, I, I think this is the season we see it so often where these these young guards who are tasked with so much offensive responsibility, they struggle on the defensive end until the offensive end becomes a little easier. I think he's going to become a complete star this year. I think that's probably the right pick. The only other pick for me, well, I guess there's two possible ones, but I'm going to take one of there's them There's two possible. Shea Gilgis-Alexander for me. Just He's already shown just the, the from-scratch offense. Would you like him to hit some more off-the-dribble threes? Yes, but he can at least work off the catch there. His just change of pace inside the arc is great. He needs to be a better playmaker. I think he makes up for that. Where I do think he will get to a point where he can elevate an entire offense on his own, but immediately he makes up for what he can do on defense. We saw some lapses in the playoffs last year, also on offense as well from him, but he like has wing range there, and so this is that's the easier that's an easy two pick for me. I don't think that was the right pick, but I don't think it was like very wrong either. I, I would have gone with Jamal Murray. Uh, just because we've seen him do it on the big stage. Like he absolutely detonated in last season's playoffs. And just the offensive flammability as he's becoming more comfortable as a as a lead ball handler and as a go-to scorer, he he does not have the defensive upside or all-around upside of, of Gilgis Alexander, but just the ability to absolutely carry an offense in games that matter, especially in a playoff series where opposing coaches are making adjustments designed to slow him down and it's not working. Just the fact that we've already seen that from him makes me put him a little bit ahead. We're not building an actual team here, right? We're just drafting these in a vacuum, correct? Correct. LaMelo Ball would be my pick. Uh, the scoring needs to come along, but his, his jumper doesn't bother me. I've seen him take some off the catch in Charlotte, and his passing is just otherworldly here. And I think he has a better chance of piloting and initiating offenses in the half court than Lonzo does right now. A much better chance, I should say, by the way. That's fair. I think it's a risky pick, but it's hard to say that it's like a wrong one. Uh, I'm going to go with Colin Sexton. Just okay. I'm buying what we're what we've seen at this early stage of the season for the Cavs. Just he the the shot is clicking, the command of the offense is clicking. It's sparking things on the other end. He I think Seth Partnow from the Athletic made this comparison, but he looks like pre scooter accident Monte Ellis, and it's accurate. Like I totally see that comparison. I actually had a friend organically make the same comparison earlier today, um, and yeah, I'm totally buying that. It's just like this absolute offensive force as both a passer and a scorer this is where it gets really tough i am going to take Derek white i think he showed some stuff in the bubble last year people were kind of up in arms about the extension that he got uh he gives you just good positional defense at the one and the two can work off other players if he just makes more of a concerted effort to use the the pull-up jumper when defenses are are going under him and to like maintain the same level of, of aggression because when he can attack the rim, he could be pretty dangerous at points. I think it's a risky play, but I think he has a much higher ceiling still than he's shown, even though he's on the older side for these guards. Yeah, totally fair. I'm going to go out on a limb here and, and go with Martel Fultz next. Oh, uh, do not like this at all. It's a, I, As I said, it's a risk, but he's still only 22 years old. And what we've seen so far this season for the Magic has – been tremendous growth like even though the three-point jumper is not falling yet he's taking them he's taking them confidently we've seen the free throw stroke improve dramatically he's 
shooting 92.3% from the line through his first three games. Um, and there's still so much room to improve here. And he still has so many of the explosive attributes that made him the number one pick before, you know, all the drama that followed subsequently. Um, so I, I don't think he's the best player of the remaining options right now, but that upside, like the original question asked who's going to have the best career and who could have the highest peak. And I'm focusing largely on the peak question here because if that jumper ever clicks, and even if it doesn't, Fultz could be a very valuable starting point guard for a long time. I just don't – he just creates so much problems for you on offense if that jumper doesn't come along. And I don't really think there's any reason to believe it will, although his free throw percentage did skyrocket last year. I'm going to take another high ceiling play here. Anthony Edwards, I've been impressed with what little I've seen from him. Uh, it seems like he has better feel than you were championing. He's going to be a good scorer. He's going to be an elite finisher. Will the jumper come along? I, I think that's really fair to question. I'm going to bet just on him having such a super high – peak on offense and then also he's just strong enough to where i think not only is that gonna help him with his finishing but i think he eventually turns into a a pretty good defender so i'm going to make that dice roll i will say that as much as i harped on anthony edwards not being my favorite pick near the top of this draft he's pleasantly surprised me and i wanted him to pleasantly surprise me as a fellow georgia bulldog i I still rooting for him even if i thought that he would be a bust and I, i do like a lot of what i'm seeing so far even if that jumper still looks pretty darn shaky but I'm going to go with D'Angelo Russell here. You know, he's the only guy left who has been an all-star. Granted, it was now three seasons ago, but he is still a, a potent offensive weapon who can function as a lead scorer, can function as a lead playmaker. And that that's just that pick and roll ability, that self-creation ability, even if he does rely on shoddy shot selection at times and doesn't get to the free throw line nearly as often as we'd like from these lead guards, he's still a, a, a fantastic offensive weapon. I'm going to take Lonzo Ball here. There's just I thought about taking him a little bit earlier too. There's just too many questions, as I mentioned earlier in the pod, about whether he can run an offense um, from stationary positions. Um, he's absolutely lethal in transition. I think he's only shooting – he's shooting sub-35% from three to start the season, but I think we've at least shown the jumper is more of a threat now. Uh, he's actually shooting an absurd percentage on pull-up jumpers this season. And so if that really comes into play where he can dribble inside the arc and – and hit jumpers, that'll be a big deal for him on uh, on whether he can orchestrate from the half court, but it's also a matter of finishing, which I don't know that he'll ever have. Still, someone you can count on to hit catch-and-shoot threes, maybe a couple off-the-dribble jumpers, going to get you going in transition, good rebounder, good positional defense can be disruptive off off the ball. Uh, I, I feel pretty good about picking him here, and there's there's a chance that like he ends up having the peak of someone who should have gone much earlier in this fake draft. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, with two options left, I'm going to go with Darius Garland. Uh, the upside is just, it's too tantalizing here because he he won't turn 21 until January 26th. Now, this is a guy who was viewed as a lottery lock and a potential top two or three pick before injuries cut his Vanderbilt career short as a freshman to only five games. Uh, he still went fifth overall, had an up and down rookie season, which was to be expected as a guy who was still figuring so many things out. And it looks like he has figured them out this early in the season for the Cavs. If that shot is legit, if the playmaking is legit, then we're going to regret leaving him on the board this long. Killian Hayes is all that's left. I, I actually think he's going to be good. And I tweeted this the other night. He's not had the most efficient start to the season, but in their game against uh, the the Hawks, he just had some really good flashes for me. I think his jumper will end up being fine. And it looks like he's going to end up just having really good feel for the game on the ball. And like, yeah, the turnovers you're going to see are like, that's just the cost of doing business with a rookie. Some of the fouls that he's going to give you on defense. I don't know that he's ever going to be anyone that like gets to the foul line a ton or is, or is this expert finisher, but I think he eventually gives you spacing and just really solid playmaking. And so him being left on the board here is more about his relative unknownness than I think about his potential because I, you could talk me into him over Garland, over Lonzo. I don't know over anybody over Fultz, else. Yeah. yeah, you could definitely talk me to him over Fultz. We actually do have one more question. This one comes from uh, Noah Noah Odage, um, or Odage. I'm sorry, I never got the pronunciation of your last name, but he is the co-host of the Stick to Sports podcast. Asks, what is the, what's the Knicks ceiling slash potential with the core they have? Well, they have Frank Natilakina, so they should be a title contender. I still want to know why you're pronouncing the T in Natilakina. Now you're going to have me do it, in Natilakina. Just to mess with you. Um, 
if they don't make any changes this season, I would still say their ceiling tops out as like the 11th best team in the East where I wouldn't expect them to make the play-in. And I already kind of mentioned this at the top of the pod. Like they need eventually more shooters on this team to help out RJ Barrett if he's the guy they're rolling with. What they still lack is just the one person you could point to, though, and say, hey, that's our North Star, our guiding light. They've been, they've been very just – they've been a nuisance so far this season. I think they deserve all the, the credit for that, but I don't – with this exact roster, I don't know where I would put them in the East above 11th. I don't know what it would take. Like Julius Randle would have to keep playing like this as my voice cracked a little bit there. Um, you would need Frankie Lakina to continue shooting the the hell out of three-pointers. You need Kevin Knox has had some pretty good shooting games, even though he's not shooting the best clip from beyond the arc this season. Um, Alec Burks, if he's healthy, he was sort of lighting it up. So if you're able to give minutes to him and Austin Rivers gets healthy and we see Mitchell Robinson – get his fouls under control, which he's kind of done the past couple games, and Obi Toppin pans out. Could they work their way into the play-in? I would say the keys to doing that are R.J. Barrett has to be more game one, first half of game one for most much of the season. Julius Randle has to play like he's playing now. Burks, you need Burks to be what he was before, and then you need someone to burst. And I wouldn't say that that's Mitchell Robinson. He's not going to give it to you on offense. Maybe it's Neil Aquina showing that he can run the offense um, in absence of Alfred Payton. Um, so that would be it. I'll say 10th to be somewhat optimistic, but I don't know that I could talk myself into the, to the best version of these Knicks being higher than that. I don't have much to add to that. I'll just say that it would be a very, very Knicks move to be just good enough to contend for a meaningless play in game in the East and miss out on Cade Cunningham and Jalen Suggs and Evan Mobley at the top of the 2021 draft. Like that would be just vintage New York Knicks. Yeah, I don't know. If if they get to that point where like Julius Randle has them like in the play in like contention, I'm I'm trading Julius Randle and I'm trading Alec Burks and if Austin Rivers helping, you're gone, Nerlens Noel gone. This is not the season to do that. Like you need I am so sold on both Cunningham and Suggs, and it's almost like the Knicks have needed a point guard for roughly forever. But anyway, I don't I don't think that's the danger. Uh, they do have – and look, in the regular season, a good defense wins you games. They're seventh in defensive efficiency right now. Uh, some of that's luck. Opponents are – they have the third best opponent effective field goal percentage in the league. Uh, and we saw the Cavaliers miss a ton of wide open looks against them. We saw the Bucks miss a crap ton of wide open looks against them. So I don't know that that holds either. But I, I think they're going to end up being fun bad. Uh, that's my prediction for them. That's their ceiling. I agree with that. Fun bad. I agree with that. Fun bad is a good ceiling. That does it for us, though. I don't like this podcast. This was a good mailbag. We got to, I think, pretty much every question that came in. So thank you guys for your questions. Please, again, continue to send them in. If you have not done so, please, please, pretty please, with sugar on top, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Download every episode. Juice the numbers. Subscribe and unsubscribe. Help us there. Rate and unrate. And definitely rate and review. Go over to iTunes. Search Hardwood Knox. I don't care whether you use iTunes or not. Search Hardware Knox on iTunes anyway. Throw us that five-star rating, write a review. Those help us out a bunch. Until next time, I leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, shooting above 40% from beyond the arc since January 25th of last season, Nick's cornerstone, Frank Natila. Tina. <laughs>